Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode of Friday Happy Hour. I am your host, Tyler Buckingham. Today I am thrilled to be sitting down for uh, drinks with Brad Warren, who is the host of the Changing Waters podcast and is also the executive director of the National Fisheries Conservation Center and leads its flagship program, Global Ocean Health. Brad, welcome to Friday Happy Hour. Thank you, Tyler. Nice to be with you. Well, Brad, uh, in preparation for this show, we were chatting about uh, the carbon crisis that is before us. And this is, I think, becoming increasingly uh, on the minds of folks out there, certainly in the conservation space and the coastal space. And today we're going to talk about some of the impacts uh, that climate change, that this carbon crisis is going to have on our oceans. And most importantly, what we can do about it, what we can expect and what we can do about it. Uh, and this is obviously a really interesting and important topic of conversation. Uh, so, Brad, let's just kick it off. T tell me what's on your mind here when we think about our current situation with carbon and the ocean. Sure. Well, our biggest program uh, is Global Ocean Health. It's focused on making sure the ocean can still make dinner for billions of people. And the primary threat to that uh, is uh, carbon pollution, uh, both in its thermal effects and in its chemical effects, uh, like ocean acidification and related changes. Um, when you put that together, uh, you've got uh, you know, you know, <laughs> this incredible mass of change that, that challenges human capacities and calls on our abilities uh, in ways that very few problems have done. Uh, we are... Um, looking at uh, uh, already the, the, the ongoing loss of productivity in key parts of the food web and in fisheries. Uh, we're looking at uh, uh, relocation of fisheries into places where um, it's, um, uh, it, people don't even have the right to operate in some cases uh, across right. national borders, for example. Uh, we're looking at uh, uh, ecosystems coming apart from the bottom. Uh, and it's a problem people tend to look at and say, that's overwhelming. There's nothing I can do. And uh, are we still there? Yes, we're right here. Okay, something just changed. Uh, anyway, uh, it, people tend to look at and say, there's nothing I can do. And we don't buy that. Uh, uh, to look at this and, and shrug uh, is to accept the unacceptable. Uh, and... Uh, for that reason, we've worked with, and we continue to work with scientists and uh, tribes and uh, coastal communities and government agencies, uh, other nonprofits, folks who are uh, in enormous ways, in, in the business community as well, uh, hurling themselves into this problem and br bringing a lot of talent and innovation to it. Uh, there really are very few problems that magnetize talent quite like this one. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's... In, in the big picture, um, it, the IPCC, uh, the sort of global scientific body that defines consensus on this, is always a little bit late on the curve because they go through peer review on everything before they incorporate it in their thinking. And their, their work in 2018 um, uh, included a huge report called uh, the uh, SR15 report saying the world needs to hit a target of 1.5 degrees uh, to meet the climate agreements out of Paris. And to do that, uh, we're going to need to do a lot more than just reduce emissions, which we've done really badly. Uh, uh, so much so that we emissions essentially rise every year, uh, with rare exceptions. Right. Uh, the curve has not really been bent down. And we're now at about 40 plus billion tons a year of CO2 from industrial and you know, modern uh, society emissions from tailpipes and smokestacks. Uh, that uh, goes, about a quarter of it goes in the ocean, about 10 billion tons a year. Uh, and over time, uh, uh, most of it does. The ocean ends up being the big carbon pump on Earth, uh, bigger than anything on land. And the big thermal sink, uh, it's where the heat goes. Right. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's the big engine of global climate regulation. Uh, and sooner or later, uh, people are going to, and sooner is what it looks like. There's a lot of energy going to this now. People are going to wind up using the ocean 
uh, as part of how we address this problem. Uh, and our thought is, uh, if this is something that must happen, and it looks like it is, uh, let's make sure it happens well. Uh, let's identify the most promising approaches we can find to help advance them and test them and make sure that they really work right. Um, uh, let's identify uh, ways and start working on ways to help people learn who have these remarkable innovative approaches, learn how to work with coastal communities and coastal states and the ocean's incumbent users, fishermen, tribes, uh, some of whom, particularly among uh, Aboriginal people, have rights uh, along with national governments that they have rights and authorities to govern and, and manage uh, ocean resources. Uh, so it's, it's going to be really necessary to work with them and not try uh, to pave them over, uh, which is, I think, somewhat inadvertently what sometimes happens when people look at the ocean as this vast, empty wilderness and imagine, you know, we'll just go out there and do what we want. It's, uh, it's not empty. Uh, it's uh, not truly a wilderness. It's more so than the land. Um, and it's not as lawless as it's assumed to be. Uh, there are laws, there are government authorities, uh, and there are stakeholders who, um, when treated in this sort of unconsciously colonial way by folks who want to do things on the ocean, uh, they can stop uh, a lot of things. And it's, uh, if the world needs this to happen, let's make sure that it's done well and is inclusive and just and fair that people get to be part of it who depend on the ocean, totally. not get aced out. Well, you're talking, Brad, about a really interesting dichotomy that I've also been thinking a little bit about, which is uh, the um, the planet, which is like this independent uh, planet. It is, in fact, a planet in orbit around a star that we happen to be on. And it happens to be a planet that is dominated by water in its oceans and then we have its people uh us who have a relationship with that planet and a way of uh conceptualizing our relationship with it that suits our existence and um the first thing i want to talk about is kind of the planet itself so we all know uh, here, if you're listening to the American Shoreline Podcast Network, you are no doubt familiar with the carbon crisis and the situation that we are facing with climate change being driven by the greenhouse gas effect of carbon up in the atmosphere so far, so far, so far and so forth. Uh, however, and, and, you're, and we're also familiar with ocean acidification. We've done shows, uh, Brad, I think you've done a show on ocean acidification. I know that we've done several shows on lobster shell disease. Um, but I, I find it very interesting, this notion that we are hurling toward a place where we are going to become increasingly desperate for solutions. It's not just... Uh, cutting back on our emissions it's also going to be carbon removal what does that look like and how does carbon removal intersect with the ocean well broadly from what we've seen carbon removal is uh, capturing co2 out of the atmosphere in the ocean and putting it where it doesn't cause harm uh, and uh, ultimately perhaps some other greenhouse gases as well, but CO2 is the dominant one. It's where most of the focus is. Uh, and there are two big buckets for that activity. Uh, one is biological, using natural systems, uh, mainly photosynthesis-driven, uh, that capture carbon and put it into uh, living matter that holds it. So trees, forests, lots of interesting forest projects. Those have been the most mature area of this activity uh, uh, up to now. Yeah, uh, technology that's tried and true. That's right, yeah, trees know what they're doing. Uh, and uh, then you have soil carbon efforts. Uh, there's a little more controversy about that. There's some uncertainty about how well soil holds carbon, uh, but it, uh, it appears that given the right approaches, it probably can. And uh, you put it all together and the natural systems approaches have been quantified by various people at somewhere between two and 10 billion tons of capacity a year at most. 
Um, and we're, we currently are about 40 billion tons in excess of <laughs> where we need to be. Wow. And that's rising. Uh, our emissions have risen 55% since 1990. Um, and uh, so when you, when you look at how, what that says, uh, it, we are going to need to do more than, than reduce emissions. We're going to get it into, we're going to need to get into things that actually remove them, and put them where they don't, they don't do harm and perhaps where they become useful. Uh, where they are transformed into things that we need. Um, yeah. Uh, the second bucket of, of approaches for this, beyond the biological interventions using essentially photosynthesis in soil, uh, is uh, abiotic. Uh, and that's basically chemistry. Um, there are different methods, but the, the gist of it is you uh, typically you capture CO2 either from the atmosphere or from a smokestack, and you... Uh, uh, what the oil industry has been doing for a long time, as you know, is sticking it down in well holes uh, where it reacts with saline minerals and uh, is held in the mineral formations. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a well-established approach. Uh, it's got some uh, caveats around it, uh, um, but it's, it, it's one way. The largest saline mineral body in the world is the ocean. Um, it's uh, it's the largest carbon sink. Uh, it's what um, um, annually absorbs about a quarter of emissions. And again, over time, uh, far more than a quarter. Uh, most end up in the ocean sooner or later. A lot of it down in the deep ocean. Uh, and a lot of it becomes things like the white cliffs of Dover. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. And organisms capture it, turn it into rock, and we get, you know, mountain ranges and coastal cliffs. Uh, it's uh, it's a pretty beautiful process, and uh, the 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 abiotic interventions typically seek to use that process and uh, uh, goose it a bit to keep up uh, with the rate at which humans have uh, perhaps foolishly uh, been digging carbon out of the ground, lofting it into the atmosphere, and spilling it from there into the ocean, where it acidifies things and depletes oxygen and causes other problems. Um, so we get both thermal and chemical consequences. We're unbalancing the foundation of the living systems that keep us alive. Uh, and if we don't deal with this, I think it's pretty widely agreed, there will be a lot fewer of us. Uh, yeah, that's kind <laughs> of a new, I mean, I, honestly, uh, you know, I, I, in my lifetime, uh, this concept have has of course been, this has been around as a concept as like a scientific theory for well over a hundred and I don't know 40 years and yeah, some um, people say over 160 yeah so I, I mean it's you can you can do this in a jar you know what I mean like you can run the atmosphere test and see that the warming will occur and if you pay any attention to the natural world you you kind of realize that everything's connected um, but conceptually for the human, uh, for, for us monkeys who occupy the planet <laughs> and call ourselves human beings, we uh, are having to change kind of our fundamental operating system with the planet. Um, it seems like, you know, for the past, certainly, interestingly, also uh, kind of during the industrial era, we have been operating under the notion that you can just... Uh, put the carbon into the atmosphere you can atmospherize the carbon mm -hmm. at no cost and that it's just kind of free or that if there are consequences to it they're invisible you know yes and they, they, they that beautiful concept of the and predatory concept of the discount rate applies let future generations deal with that one you know, right um, it's uh, uh it's it's not our problem um, but um, now but now we seem to be and you know, I, I think there's a lot that goes into this. I mean, I think about space and looking at, you know, uh, looking at the planet from space, the the pale blue dot uh, thing uh, picture and writing that Carl Sagan uh, wrote, uh, you know, it, it's a different perspective. A lot of the, the Apollo astronauts talked about how when they're out there on the moon, they're actually just looking at Earth the whole time. And just thinking about how damn fragile that little planet looks from the moon. Mm. And um, 
you know, it's just, it, it, I do think that there, as a, as a society, as a culture, we are changing, uh, I, and I think it's out of necessity, our relationship with the planet and what you're talking about when you, when you're talking about this, like these global systems and how the ocean works as a part of these systems that we are a part of these systems. This is, this is, this defines a new era of human relationship with the planet. Does it not? I agree. It does. And I, it, it, it could be argued that it's not the first time this has happened. I mean, humans were fundamentally operating within the geochemical balance and thermal balance of the planet up until the industrial revolution. There weren't very many of us. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of power yet. Uh, our access to energy was limited. We didn't have a lot of fossil resources at our disposal. We hadn't invented the diesel yet. I uh, hadn't done much with it anyway, until about you know, the end of the 1700s, early part of the 19 uh, of the 19th century, 1800s. Uh, by 1850, the Industrial Revolution was really underway, right? And yeah. we launched the modern fossil era, but some people call it the oil era, the oil age. Um, it included, of course, coal and uh, natural gas and uh, tar sands and other things. But you know, up until then, there'd been very little of that sort of thing. Burned. Anything that burns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if it comes out of the ground and you can burn it and yeah. it's energy dense, it is, in fact, uh, an incredible source of power and prosperity. And it gave us the ability to grow human population from somewhere around a billion people to now, you know, seven going on nine uh, billion. Um, and I mean, it's remarkable. And the amount of uplift that's occurred uh, is, is real and needs to be acknowledged. Uh, the oil, coal, gas era did bring uh, astonishing amounts of prosperity and insight and discovery and enabled many things no question um, no question it also, it, it, it also challenged what had been ten thousand years of essentially stable conditions on earth during which modern civilization was born and so we have an entire civilizational memory that is resting on this beautiful Holocene period in Earth's history when it was stable and behaved itself and created optimal conditions for humans. We, we ended that by learning how to tap the Earth's carbon resources, burn them, loft them into the air, and foul it along with the ocean. We, we, yeah. we well, fouled our own nest. Well, and I, th I, feel, I think that it's, it's more than that. If I might just get into the psychology that is the carbon thing, it, it's the, it's the, it's the, I think Brad and I, I've, we're focusing on carbon on this show, of course, but, um, and it is by far an important driver, but I, while we are managing and talking about this problem, I can't help but think that really what we're talking about here is this notion of abundance to the infinite abundance of resources almost carbon and energy and you know oil coal all that stuff being one particularly problematic example in our current uh scenario but with at, at in any event if whether or not you're extracting lithium or whatever out of the earth copper you know gold all the stuff that we're mining you know all of the materials you know i i just i think about the industrial era um which is what i'm calling it we could call it the the, the carbon era or the fossil fuel era or whatever this this energy era is that as you point out disrupted uh this stable period in the planet i look at that as also being an era where people's behavior and relationship with the planet broadly changed like on the coast people started developing on the coast differently than they previously had because they had steam shovel they could like manipulate the space in ways that weren't imaginable before that's right you and could get work done in ways that no prior generation could and we as a this is the most interesting aspect of this problem because of the fossil fuel revolution we today are the most capable humans who have ever existed to solve this problem. Right. No prior generation would have had a prayer. We do. And it's, it, it is a result of that phenomenal amount of power that came to do work, to get stuff done, that came into our hands through the fossil fuel revolution. 
you know, because of it, we got the computing revolution, which allows us to even know what we're up against. Without computing, huh. we wouldn't be able to model and, and discern these changes in right. a way that allows us to respond. Uh, that's one example I could go on. Uh, there are many, many, many. The increased resource use that you mentioned could be argued to be a result of having the power to dig stuff up, cut stuff down, build things that we couldn't have done before. Right. Uh, without the energy, you don't do the job. Uh, the energy changed all of that. And it's unclear to me whether humans will give up that energy, uh, whether they should. You know, should we abandon energy intensiveness? I don't know. Uh, there's a there's a case to be made for that, um, but the uh, the thing that I think practically speaking can be said is that people will not willingly do so. What they will do and are doing is transform the energy system into one that's much much cleaner uh, and reduce the amount of of energy and materials we waste and become a more sustainable society. This is all happening. Uh, yeah. The the, the rate of change, particularly on emissions of carbon, is is not enough, but the the rate of improvement in efficiency and use of resources is pretty significant. Uh, the the thing about all those other resources that needs to be borne in mind, they matter. I don't mean to dismiss them, but none of them hold a candle to carbon in terms of sheer volume. Uh, carbon is the largest stream of pollution in human history. Uh, it is. At 40 billion tons, roughly, oh, I mean, the, the, the largest number that you see uh, among other waste streams and pollutants is typically nitrogen, which is a few billion tons. Wow. Um, uh, maybe 10 uh, is, is an estimate I've seen, a pretty large one, but that, you know, that's a fourth the size. Plastics, well, let's say you take the high end of the estimates. Uh, we have maybe currently around nine million tons of that going in the ocean so to get to understand what's going on with carbon compared to plastics which gets a lot of attention and should it's it's a uh, it's a good kind of problem to have actually because you can see it it's so visible totally and huge amounts of attention to, to the plastics problem um, it is about one three thousandth the size of the carbon waste stream uh, of the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere uh, and a thousandth as much as goes into the ocean. Right. Goes into uh, that a thousandth as much plastic goes into the ocean compared to carbon dioxide. Um, it's it, the, the parallels to, to the, the rhyme with COVID in some respects here is uh, just unavoidable. I mean, you can't see it. It's, uh, as you know, when we're living our lives in the busy, hectic existence that we all enjoy, uh, you don't realize just how much energy you're using. And uh, we are disconnected from the from the burning. You know what I mean? Like, well, I guess I have my my car engine uh, and I go to the fuel pump. I'm connected there. But, you know, my food, my electricity, my you know, just my the world around me that sustains my life is running on, you know, here in Texas, I, I suppose there's a fair chance it's partially wind powered. I know the city of Austin does a good job, but, you know, broadly speaking around the world, we're burning stuff for our energy. So what you're telling me, Brad, is that what the future looks like is we're going to plant some stuff. We're going to do some forestry. That's going to knock down maybe 10 billion tons a year if we go full bore if we're lucky if and we're it lucky. all works okay and i want to circle i want to circle back to that later yeah if we have time and then what you're also telling me is that we're going to do some direct capture at the smokestack and we can liquefy that down into uh into a, a co2 gas and then pipeline it down into the ground uh, and secure geologic storage, that stuff. That's That seems like a no-brainer. That'll lower our emissions, but we're still we're still running a deficit, right? That's not going to get us down to zero. You still have tailpipes. You, I mean, the world's a, a big place. Implementing that across the board is uh, probably unlikely, uh, you know, quickly. So then there's this other piece where we're going to 
are we d- developing machines that will just pull this out of the atmosphere? And out of smokestacks and tailpipes, okay. where it's, there's higher concentrations and it's and easier we liquefy- to get. Okay, so now no. let's so so what what else is going on in this space of uh, you know action that that is going to lead to the, these solutions? Sure. Well, besides the biological approach and this sort of carbon capture and sequestration work that puts it down in a hole in the oil business, you have a third stream developing, which is really about uh, using uh, the chemistry of the ocean itself, uh, which is the largest carbon sink on Earth anyway. As it as it is now. Right. And it happens slowly because the ocean's overturning cycle drives it, and that's a very slow century scale, you know, many multiple centuries process with uh, a, a reaction cycle in Would the ocean. You, that, could you take uh, could you take thirty seconds? Could you take thirty seconds and just explain what that ocean er- overturning cycle is? Sure. Uh, the uh, ocean currents ar- around the world uh, are propelled by uh, overturning uh, uh, and wind at the surface and overturning in, in the deep. Uh, and these form these kind of um, locomotives of the global currents in, this, in the ocean. Uh, and they uh, bring up uh, deep water loaded with uh, CO2, react it with the um, uh, carbonate minerals that the ocean is just thick with. Uh, in fact, for many years, people thought that the ocean was incapable of acidification caused by human pollution because it has so much carbonate material in it. These, these are these are really salts. There, you have sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, and some right. others. Those are the dominant ones, and they they react with CO two and essentially turn it into rock, uh, which floats in uh, in in the ocean. Uh, in either dissolved or particle form, and then uh, yeah, over long periods of time, settles down on the seabed and forms things like the White Cliffs of Dover. <laughs> you right. Know, you get you get this rock building process, uh, and that uh, that is uh, an enormous engine, uh, and it is not yet proven how much it can do, uh, how much it can safely do. Uh, it's, this is an entirely different process from something people looked at about 20 years ago, which turned out to be you know, very controversial and for good reason. That was this idea of direct injection of liquid CO2 into the ocean, where maybe you can get it to stay, maybe you can't. Uh, and along the way, you were going to induce a lot of extra acidification and it, you get to a serious problem. Uh, you might kill off a lot of things. Uh, uh, in, in, in the approach people are looking at now, there are a variety of approaches uh, really that go into this that are, are looking at how do you goose that system uh, and drive uh, this reaction between these alkaline carbonates and the, the CO2 that goes in and thereby defeat the acidification of the ocean because you're turning it into uh, alkaline rock. And um, you're also capturing the CO2 and preventing it from getting free again and causing havoc in the the sea and the sky. Um, So that approach might turn out to be an important part of the picture. Uh, We don't know yet. Uh, There are some, uh, you know, very interesting approaches for that. And in the ocean, there are also biological approaches. Uh, So it's not just forests. There also are, I think, really interesting prospects with large-scale kelp growing. Uh, that could turn out to be an important biological uh, process for capturing carbon and putting it away safely. And in, in all of these, uh, you, you want to do things that don't just put it away, but produce things that are useful, uh, like things that protect the ocean from acidification, like these these carbonate minerals are, uh, or things that humans use, like hydrogen. Uh, and uh, one renewable hydrogen, for that matter. Uh, hmm. So it's it's clean, uh, right? And there's some very interesting technologies for that. I, one of which we'll soon, I hope, be able to do an interview about uh, with the uh, the lead scientist behind a company called Planetary Hydrogen. That's so very, great. okay, ladies ahead. and gentlemen. Well, I'm just I'm just plugging it uh, yeah. here. I you know it's my job as the host of this show and. Over here at ASPN, when we got an upcoming show, we got to plug it. So 
Ladies and gentlemen, look forward to that on the Changing Waters podcast, a little deep dive into this kind of emergent technology. But Brad, let me ask you, what is your overall, how do you feel about that? I mean, it seems to me the earlier in the show, you introduced the ocean as a wilderness area, which I love. We don't think of it that way, but it, indeed it's, it is, it's wild out there. Um, and when I, this is me, me, this is my read. When I view climate change, I'm almost like, don't mess with the wilderness areas. Like those are the areas that are combating climate change naturally. Like, and what you're suggesting here is goosing it. Boy, or not, you're, I, don't, I don't mean to say that you're suggesting, but you're suggesting that's possibly a solution is goosing some of these systems. Is that, how do you feel about that? I mean, to me, that seems a little scary. It could be. And there is a, a real need for fundamental research to understand the guardrails. Uh, what is it that the system is capable of? Uh, what are the limits you don't want to go beyond? Uh, what is safe to do? What's not? Um, that work was wow. done. Uh, in looking at the potential to do deep ocean sequestration of liquefied CO2 years ago. And it helped cast light on the potential risks of global ocean acidification as a field. It sort of birthed this important new uh, research area and uh, vital thing for humans to understand about the consequences of our carbon intensive life, that we're not just uh, affecting the temperature, we're affecting the fundamental chemistry of Earth's largest biosphere, the ocean, and uh, which is 90% of the biosphere all by itself, 70% uh, of the Earth's surface. Uh, it is already the, the big pump for carbon and heat. Uh, and because it overturns slowly and the reactions occur slowly, it's not keeping up either, uh, no more than the Earth's systems on shore and the atmosphere are keeping up. Uh, we just have achieved a velocity that natural systems aren't keeping up with. Wow. The questions to be evaluated in the ocean uh, are, are serious. Uh, and, and there's, there are proposed research projects we're looking at now, uh, and some of which we're helping to advance to evaluate. Uh, can you do this uh, sustainably without breaking the system? Can you do it beneficially? So that what you're doing is reversing ocean acidification, one of the consequences of this excessive pollution, by turning it into beneficial bicarbonate and carbonate salts that help the ocean do its job. Uh, if, if you can, what are the constraints and guardrails that should be around that? Uh, how, what measurement, what monitoring systems should be in place to make sure it's done right? What governance systems should be in place? Uh, and this, uh, it's the same is true of, of using the ocean as a, uh, as a vast new growing area for globally significant quantities of kelp that can capture carbon and turn it into things that we eat or we feed to livestock or that we turn into products that sequester carbon uh, or we bury it in the deep sea and let it turn into rock, which does naturally occur. Uh, we could it, kelp in some systems does naturally get caught in downdrafting currents and wind up plating out on the seabed and becoming part of the sediment and ultimately, you know, geology. Um, these processes are being explored actively. Uh, the Department of Energy's ARPA-E program is funding a, a significant effort, uh, which is actually quite thoughtfully run. Uh, and again, another group we'd like to interview in, in the Changing Waters show. Uh, uh, looking at how to scale this up, what are the obstacles, how do you shape it so that it does things that people want done and doesn't cause harm? Um, does it? Uh, can it be done in a way that makes food that people need? Can it be used, and not just kelp, there's some other macroalgae and things that grow in the ocean that you can, you can use as these very fast-growing photosynthetic engines. Um, is this actually something that should go to scale? If it right. if it should, what are the what are the processes and you know cautions we should put in place to make sure it's done right? Uh, how do you work with the communities and people who are already on the ocean? I, I would say the oceans are the most wild part of the ocean of the world in many ways, but they're not a true sort of romantic vision of a wilderness. There are incumbents, 
There are people who've been using the ocean for centuries. Right. Uh, there are, you know, many laws and rules and, and uh, international conventions, treaties that, that pertain. Uh, it's, uh, it's neither lawless, lawless nor a true wilderness. It's inhabited, but it's inhabited in a way that kind of resembles the way the Americas were inhabited when Columbus showed up. And look how well that went. <laughs> well, this is what I want to talk to you about. Talk to you about uh, next, Brad. Is um, this? How do we prepare? How do we do a good job as a society as we use these buzz buzzwords like resilience and adaptive mindset and things like that? You know, for climate change. Here we have a real example. I mean. What you're suggesting, what you're positing, is that we will need to engage uh, the whole planet, including all ecosystems. Everything is going to be impacted here, including the ocean. And that's then going to impact the fact that the ocean is inhabited. It's, this is going to cause a disruption. It already is causing a dis Climate change is causing a disruption, of course. But these... Uh, climate change mitigation efforts are going to introduce new players. Really significant change. Yes. I mean, for example, let's talk about that. if if we use the oceans for only 10 billion tons of carbon removal, uh, never mind all the other things that people are now looking at doing on the ocean. There's a lot of activity brewing that could easily wind up industrializing large areas of the ocean. I'll leave that off the table. This by itself, carbon removal, could be a, a really significant and industrial scale activity. 10 billion tons a year uh, would be the low end of the, of the sort of scenarios that people have talked about for carbon removal. And the ocean, I don't know, it's, it's, I haven't seen any estimates of how much it can do. Uh, in this area, uh, can, how much more can you add and safely and do this in a way that puts it into these, you know, carbon uh, forms that are um, beneficial and make sure that you dose it right or whatever the right word. Do you know is, what that would look right like, way. Brad? Like, do you know, do you know, like how, what, how do you do that? Is this what sort of industrial <laughs> process would one undertake to do as you suggest and convert carbon into some sort of salt is that what we're talking about in effect it's a, a reaction product of of uh an acid in a base the alkaline uh carbonates that react with the co2 form a salt if you get a sodium carbonate or sodium bicarbonate typically there's some other products that can form too um, and you you capture the co2 at the source and you do one or another, and there are a number of processes uh, that chemists have developed who've been working on this actually for decades. But this People doesn't happen in solution. Trying to figure out how to put CO2 into rock. Oh, really? And, and use seawater as a medium for this. Wow. Uh, uh, and it's, it's not a new question. Uh, it's still a young question. Huh. Um, um, but among the methods that we've seen, uh, you have some that require... Uh, uh, mining limestone, grinding it up, turning it into dust, dropping it into the ocean, using it as an extra, extra source of alkalinity to accelerate the process. Uh, and then sometimes uh, uh, you, you, you might do this in a reaction chamber instead of the ocean and then spill the brine into the ocean. Right. Um, uh, but well, I think typically that's how it will happen. Um, it could, uh, it could, there's another process that uh, we've learned about recently and we're very interested in this is apparently much more efficient and does not require grinding up uh, uh, mountain ranges of limestone to uh, turn into uh, powder for this. And uh, it's uh, if it works as well as it looks like it does, and some very serious chemists have vetted it, uh, this, um, uh, this could be uh, both energy and material efficient way of uh, driving this kind of process. Um, and that's uh, currently a subject of several research proposals to evaluate how best to control the, the, uh, the, the reactions and make sure that it's beneficial and not harmful, uh, which is exactly what you want to see, your precautionary approach. Uh, and the right people are working on it. 
uh, some very good people from NOAA and University of Miami and other, elsewhere. Uh, and uh, then you, you've got, um, you know, similar uh, careful, precautionary, thoughtful approach to the development of uh, macroalgae culture. Uh, when the ocean can be a very good place to grow it. Uh, you've got high nutrient fluxes moving through the sea and uh, the right conditions. Uh, in some places you can grow, uh, you know, red algae that'll grow at 18 inches a day. Uh, you know, right. it, you know it's well, can I, can I Can I just pause and just say, sure. you know, yeah. Brad, you, you head up the National Fisheries Conservation Center. I do. Uh, and, imp, you know, an organization that is focused on uh, not just the fish and the biology, but the the human's relationship to it, the food. Yep. And yep. Uh, I, I'm curious, it's, it's interesting to me to hear you talking so favorably about introducing another player onto the sea. I mean, uh, it's, it's really not optional. I think the question okay. is, how, is it done well or is it done badly? Not, is it going to be done? Yeah. And humans have made such a mess. We're now going to, uh, go huckily buck or go thoughtfully into a radical change in how we use the ocean. Um, we would prefer it to be thoughtful, well-governed, uh, managed in a way that's inclusive and just and gives the people who depend on the ocean today a chance to be part of the solution instead of being paved by it, which could happen. Um, right. We, we think that if we do nothing, uh, if humans fail to invoke this human genius for creative solutions at enormous scales, we now face consequences that involve destroying much of the ocean's ability to make dinner for 3 billion plus people. Uh, that's why we're in this. Uh, if, if it were safe to just say the ocean's good, all we need to do is not catch too much fish, we'd be doing that. Uh, that's a much easier problem, by the way. I like easy problems. Uh, you know, lots of people work on that. It's, uh, it, it, they're doing a good job. There's a lot of good work dealing with fishing, fishing problems. Uh, we do some of it still. Uh, but you can't just myopically focus on whether we catch too many fish when the ocean itself is losing its ability to make fish. Uh, this is the problem. And uh, this, the ocean and the land are fundamentally losing their carrying capacity. You know, we're seeing, as an example, during the blob when the ocean off the northwest coast got really hot uh, a few years ago, uh, we saw salmon uh, re return and go up the uh, up the Columbia River. The river itself got so hot that wow. half the return, and it was a big return of Columbia River sockeye salmon, died in the, the main stem river on their way home as adults. Wow. Now, these are big, robust adult fish. They're not vulnerable little ones. And they're in a main stem river that's one of the largest rivers on the planet. It's fed by snowmelt and rain, and it's in the northwest of the, of the North American continent. It drains an area larger than France, yeah. you know, with mountains all over it. It is, it, it is a big river. It should not be that hot. If it's hot enough to kill fish, we got a problem. Yeah. And that's just one preview. I mean, you could go on. There's so many. Uh, I mean, if you look at the epidemic of forest fires that consumes now, you know, millions of acres every year in the West, that, and it contaminates our air, makes it unbreathable. I mean, we couldn't stay in our house without having heavy-duty air filters going and even that turned out not to be enough I mean, it was it was really unsafe for a while there in september yeah and that's now normal that's not an, an aberration that's where the trend is going more and more years uh so and then you look at what are those forest fires do to fish and rivers that are sort of the shoulders of the ocean feeding them with fish um, it ain't good uh, you get a lot of uh of loading of toxics into those streams that yeah. kill fish in the water and you know then you get amplified flood cycles as a function of climate change the whole hydrograph in rivers has been compressed into these big high peaks of floods and then these droughts okay so in the droughts the rivers get hot because there's not enough water to stay cool 
in the floods, they wash the, the salmon, the young salmon out to sea and kill them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. And, well, that's just an example. You know, no, no, no. you well, could go on across I, 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 many I, systems. I, well, I, I, so uh, I want to uh, wrap it up here on a, with, yeah. on a final topic, um, which is uh, obviously you're talking about the research that is necessary, the scientific discovery that is still out there. Um, and the innovation of, of uh, not only uh, technology with regard to like, you know, new ways to uh, sequester carbon, things like that. It's also, I think there's a social technology component where it's new ways to understand uh, a healthy, prosperous existence on the planet. Um, but so there's the scientific component that you've been talking about. And uh, I, I'm wondering what you think, how you think, um, what the challenges are in communicating this problem, uh, obviously, you know, to the people who are engaged in it first and foremost, because I'll tell you, Brad, like there isn't a unified playbook here. No, I mean we are not, not we, even close. We're not, not there yet. yet. We we are <laughs> right. we lack we lack a dedicated effort at the moment, and so so what? How do you think we should be functioning from a communications perspective? And like, what what is the communications challenge? One way of thinking about this, and there are others. I don't mean to say this is the only way, um, is to approach it in terms of what are the recognized needs people know they need to meet. And if you look at the coastal communities, the tribes, the local governments, state governments, they have usually a set of priorities that don't even include carbon. Uh, and if, if somebody goes to them and says, I've got the solution to your carbon problems, they tend to look at you and go, fine, does it make jobs? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, they have other concerns. Um, and yeah. I think one of the key things that people who are working on this problem need to get real about is, is the need to develop multi-benefit solutions that can be adapted to fit local needs uh, on the coasts, on the water, among the people who otherwise will um, in inevitably harden into the kind of opponents you don't want to have. Uh, you, you do much better to deal them in and give them what they actually want, uh, it, which is opportunity and a good place to live and a way to defend their community from these e enormous changes and impacts that are already breaking loose. I mean, I've talked to people in coastal Washington state who we did some sea level rise modeling a few years ago and showed them the maps and they, they said, oh yeah, that road does flood. And that's, you predicting that in the future. I, I couldn't get my kid to school last week because the road was flooded. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, uh, th there are very real day-to-day -day life problems people are already facing. And if uh, these technologies and approaches can help them meet them, by creating jobs and opportunities and sources of resilience and ways of meeting the root causes of these really catastrophic uh, impacts that they're starting to face, uh, then maybe uh, we, as a human uh, community, can actually deal with the problem we made. Uh, this is not a known thing, but it resembles uh, a problem that has been met before more than once. Uh, and, a, and a good example of this is in South Africa. Uh, at the end of the apartheid era, it was commonly understood that what was going on in South Africa was unacceptable and there were no credible alternatives. People were completely stuck and uh, there was nothing that would work. And the notion of, of envisioning a transformation to a modern democracy was laughable. And uh, the process that turned out to work there was a, a variant of scenario planning uh, uh, known as scenario, uh, scenario uh, well, uh, of transformative scenario planning. Uh, it was one of the key transformative turns and they convened people from all walks of life from many different political and social 
um, corners of South African life, artists, union leaders, industrialists, government leaders, and they got them talking about uh, what if we try to tackle this impossible problem? Um, and it, it's impossible, but we've got to do it, is what people agreed. And then they looked at what's a plausible set of ingredients for any future you can imagine. And they identified the building blocks. And from those, they built scenarios that basically they agreed were made of credible parts. Uh, and they cast out some ideas. Uh, at one point, a communist mine leader came, um, a union mine leader, um, uh, one of the union leaders, came into the room and said, well, a plausible outcome is that uh, uh, the Red Chinese Army invades South Africa and saves us and liberates us. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> laughed and he laughed too. And they said, do you think that's really plausible? And he, yeah. he kind of shrugged and admitted no. So they, they you know, but, but they agreed on what are credible ways. And, and the end result was, you know, the emergence in still wobbly and uncertain, imperfect, but of a democracy and Nelson Mandela and, a, you know, a nation that rejoined the human community. Um, they did something that was impossible that none of them thought could work. Yeah. And they did it. Well, it's it's a very well said, Brad. And uh, that's the kind of openness and reconciliation I think we're going to need to do. And I agree. Everyone needs to be dealt in. Um, everyone needs to come to the table and be creative. Uh, and that's... Uh, that's what we try to do here, ladies and gentlemen, on ASPN as best as we can. Brad Warren. Well done, sir. Thank you, thank you. so much for uh, for joining me on this happy hour. And uh, for the listeners out there, uh, thanks for joining us as well. Have a great and safe weekend. Mask up. And we'll be back next week with another week of packed content on ASPN. ASPN.